Welcome to ArcNext Sessions, episode 19. This week, we'll be discussing the widely published and debated design for Google's new Silicon Valley headquarters designed by Bjarke Ingels Group and Thomas Heatherwick of Heatherwick Studio. And we'll also be talking about the uh, recently owned Whitney Plantation, the nation's first slavery museum located near New Orleans. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna, Amelia, and Ken. Amelia, how was your week? It was really good. Really good. This past weekend, I went on my first Atlas Obscura event in LA. The uh, Atlas Obscura's LA Society holds these kind of historical and preservationist tours around the city, showing you things you wouldn't otherwise know were there. And I went up to Santa Clarita to see the site of the St. Francis Dam disaster, which was this horrible event in the Santa Clarita Valley where a dam failure resulted in the deaths of like hundreds of people living in the valley. And this was one of the famous cases of a Mulholland Dam being built and Mulholland being this infamous, well, famous and infamous LA character who became an engineer without any formal training, built a bunch of dams. One of them failed, killed a bunch of people, and he kind of sulked off into <laughs> poor reputation for the rest of his life. But, you know, if you've seen Chinatown, you kind of get the gist of it. But that was a great tour. Highly recommend anyone, you know, you're going up the five freeway and you see either six flags to the west. If you're not an amusement park person, just go east and you'll head up to the, the site of a dam disaster where a bunch of people died. <laughs> it's fantastic. Um, it's also just quite beautiful. I must say, I know it sounds like pretty morbid, but it's a beautiful valley where you can see, you know, just rubble where the um, dam formerly stood. And it's an interesting preservation issue. You know, like people are not eager to point to this area as like a, a piece of sad infrastructural failure. They want to, in some ways, preserve what's left, but at the same time, not draw too much attention to it. So it's a fascinating place. I definitely recommend anyone nearby to check it out. So how do these Atlas Obscura tours work? Do people just sign up for them online? Yeah, it's a ticketed event usually because they're really, they keep them really intimate. This tour was like under a dozen people. So you just get taken around by, in this case, um, by an expert in whatever subject the tour is on. In this case, it was a person who had written her public archaeology thesis on the St. Francis Dam disaster. And so she was just like giving this incredible like two hour nonstop motor mouth informative spiel on everything that had to do with the disaster and like all the names of the people and the families and what they did and what they were wearing when the flood hit and like how they reacted if they survived and just all this crazy stuff. So it's it's usually just a small ticketed thing. You can go on Atlas Obscura's website and I think they have societies in Chicago, New York, D.C., and L.A., and then they have events all the time. So you can see what's up. Super cool. Very cool. God, L.A.'s got so many things like that to do, and I just don't even know where to start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's it's so fascinating because it's part of, you know, technically the St. Francis Dam does not exist in L.A., but when the dam broke, the water traveled through the canyon and ended up depositing some of the debris and people who died eventually in the Pacific Ocean, which is like, I think somewhere above like a 50 mile tour. So they refer to it as the conglomerate, the conglomerate of livestock, building structures, rubble, debris, people, everything that got caught in, in the flood ending up eventually at the Pacific Ocean. And so they could kind of chart this incredible travel. And so, yeah, it kind of carved through LA. So I'm sure there are places in LA city proper that have been touched by the disaster that we just don't know about exactly. But yeah, I also totally get overwhelmed. There's just so much stuff going on. The Anthropocene, we build a dam and it breaks and it, it changes the shape of the landscape. Absolutely. Yeah. Six Flags should make a ride based on it. <laughs> and it's just around the corner. We joked about that so much because, you know, Six Flags also has its like water yeah. side thing. I forget what it's called. Like it's not raging waters. That's a separate thing. But 
are like, yeah, they should have like just a dam that breaks and you go flooding down it. <laughs> Wouldn't that be hilarious and, and totally if, appropriate memorial to all of the people that died and such a thing? And if visitors <laughs> die, then it's just authentic. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Oh. Very a faithful reenactment. Yes. Wow. Donna, how was your week? Oh, my week is, um, it's going very well, but quite unpredictably. I'm in Washington, D.C., which I knew I was going to be, for the AIA Grassroots Conference. And for people who don't know, Grassroots is the conference where AIA architects get together and we spend a day, all of us from across the nation, we go and basically lobby our local national leaders, congressional officers. So we have, in my chapter, we have a fantastic executive director who sets up these appointments for us for Thursday, tomorrow, to meet with as many of our legislators as he can. And we had five of them scheduled for tomorrow. Well, D.C. is expecting a winter storm of four to nine inches of snow. And apparently when snow comes to D.C., the whole city just panics and shuts down. So as of now, we've had two cancellations on our congressional staff meetings. And they're actually saying that the the city might be shut down tomorrow, which would be very unfortunate. Oh, no. So they've got 700 architects in a hotel who are planning to go spend tomorrow lobbying for our causes. And uh, we may just all sit in the bar all day tomorrow. (laughs) Well, there's a silver lining. (laughs) There is a silver lining and there will be plenty of tweeting and pictures. And yeah, you guys are going to build some amazing hotel forts if it comes to being snowed in. We could do that, too. We could build forts. Yes. With the lobby furniture. And yeah. (laughs) So. What is that process like lobbying your representatives? It's bizarre. Uh I did it for the first time last year. And basically at the grassroots meeting, they give you all kinds of prep classes on uh, how to do it, basically, because you only have what we have are 30 minute slots. And in some cases, it's more like 20 minutes or 15 even. And frequently you're not meeting with the legislator. You're meeting with one of their staff. And the staff in Congress all tend to be like 25-year-olds. So for someone like me, who's 47, it seems like I'm talking to this very young child, but they're all incredibly savvy. You know, many of them are political studies majors. They're all very savvy about how this place, Washington, D.C., works, which I am not at all. So, you know, you have your half hour or whatever appointment. You go in, you all introduce yourselves. We go as a group. So we all say, I'm Donna from the AIA and um, I'm a constituent of yours and we want to talk to you about this. And the AIA has three talking points that we specifically are addressing this year. Historic Preservation Tax Credit, keeping that in place. The National Design Services Act, which is the one that would allow recent graduates to get student loan forgiveness based on doing work in nonprofits. So similar to Teach for America or something. And the other one is a new one. This is a new issue about building to resilience. And it basically relates to encouraging municipalities to improve their building codes so that when disasters like floods and whatnot hit, you have less damage. And, you know, there are many municipalities in the country who have building codes that were made in 1964 and have never really been updated. So there's a lot of currently, we've had, of course, sadly, a lot of of um, natural disasters or big disasters. And there's lots of evidence that the buildings built to much more current codes are able to withstand those things better. So basically, it's a lobbying to get more places to adopt contemporary codes. You go in, you sit down and talk with the legislator for a couple minutes. They usually ask you a little bit about who you are and how things are back in the home state. And then you leave and the next group is coming in and the next group might be seamstresses. It might be a gun rights group. It might be, you just don't know. It's all kinds of things. So it's an interesting process. And at the same time, makes me feel incredibly proud of our country and our process. And it makes me feel really dirty, like really, <laughs> you know, not like it's a slimy backdoor 
it's a very conflicting situation, but it's it's something everyone should experience. Absolutely, everyone should experience this because this is how our democracy works. So that's very cool, though. Does AIA themselves, they created this thing called Grassroots and that's how you heard about yes. it and became involved? Okay. And it's basically Grassroots is, I think, for the most part, people who are involved in their local chapters at a executive or, or some kind of board level membership. So how long have you been doing this? This is only my second year. I did it last year. It has been going on for, I think, 14 years. Yeah. So are there a lot of familiar faces? I recognize quite a few people from last year, but when they had our opening session just a couple hours ago, Elizabeth Chu Richter, who's the current president of AI National, asked people to raise their hands if they were first timers to grassroots. And I'd say more than half the room raised their hands. So it's a lot of people who've never done this before and are just beginning to get involved. You know, I don't think it's slimy at all that what you're doing. I mean, anyone who's seen Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is familiar with, yeah. the, or even just Lincoln. You could just watch the movie Lincoln. He had people come to his office advocating on behalf of themselves. So, I mean, yeah. part of our civic responsibility is not to just vote. That, I think, is the easiest part. I think we need to actively engage the people who make the laws. I think they depend depend on us to be apathetic. And I think there's too many people who just want to think that changing the laws means standing on the sidelines, shouting other people down and not actually putting your mouth where you're, or, you know, putting your, your tools <laughs> to good use and actually going yeah. and yeah. doing what you're doing and advocating on behalf of uh, not just architects. You know, you're not advocating on behalf of the AIA. I think you're really advocating on behalf of intelligent people who are starting to see that just because we can make a snowball in winter doesn't mean that global warming or global <laughs> climate change isn't a reality. It's it's a fact. It's it's a reality. Exactly. And, and uh, snowball in winter is not going to change that. We just actually had a little, in one of the prep sessions, they showed a little chart of a survey of the issues that AIA members want to us to be lobbying on. And basically it was a small percentage said that AIA should be working on business issues. And a small percentage said we should be working on design and environment issues. And the vast majority, like 70%, said we need to work on both. Like we need to, yes, we need to make the business climate good for architects, but we also have to make the world better through design, through all of the things that architecture can do to make the world a better place. So I feel like I'm advocating on behalf of my entire city and state to have a better environment there. So so yeah, that that's the nice part of it. It still feels a little dirty. Well, I want to know if the people present who went to this with you, were any of them talking about the whole I look up thing? That has been mentioned briefly. I was invited and as part of Grassroots, they've put out a couple of different hashtags that they want us to be doing that are related to I look up. So some mm. sketching and some Arca selfie. I think it's the hashtag is arc selfie. But we're going to talk a little more about that tomorrow and in our sessions on Friday. But tomorrow I was invited to be part by the AI National to be part of a special focus group on digital transformation and outreach issues, I think is what we're talking about. So I don't know for sure, but I think maybe the podcast has been one of the reasons that they've reached out and asked me to participate in that. So we will be talking about I Look Up, I'm sure, and we'll be talking about social media and how digitally we get our information out. So maybe you can talk a little bit about that next week. I will try. I will. Yeah. Ken, how was your week? It's going pretty well. Working on some new projects at my firm, which are pretty interesting. Nice uh, get a grasp of uh, working in this office on some things that uh, I'm not helping. I'm kind of building from the ground up. So that's going to be uh, fun. Good. Yeah. Yeah. See, I saw a good architecture movie over the weekend. Oh, what was that? Uh, Whiplash. <laughs> Uh, how is it architectural? <laughs> Architecture school movie. <laughs> oh, I see. Because you get beaten with uh, drumsticks in architecture school. No, no. You know, it, it reminded me of um, a couple of times. It reminded me of college uh, going to architecture school. And it reminded me um, when I was asked to play football in uh, high school. 
where the person who's the teacher or the instructor knows the game and is not willing to tell you how the game works. And you have to kind of figure out how the game is supposed to work. And I never, never really got along with authority figures. So I was like, well, and at the end, the movie did pretty well at the end and, and kind of resolved to how I wanted it to resolve itself. And I didn't see it coming, actually. But it, it was brutal. <laughs> Wait, I don't know what this movie Whiplash is. What's the basic premise? Uh, a kid gets accepted to prestigious music school in New York City mm-hmm. and is invited to play in this top-level jazz band. And he has this sadistic instructor who just completely keeps toying with him and trying to instill in him, um, trying to make him... Charlie Parker, essentially, mm-hmm. um, and just brutal, you know, making him play for hours. It just it's a complete mind fuck movie, torturing students, that whole deal. You know, I say it's like architecture school, but I'm exaggerating a little bit. A little bit. This, <laughs> the uh, totally sadistic drum teacher is the guy who won Best Actor. And this is also J.K. Simmons. Is that his name? Yeah, the yellow M&M, I think, right? Yeah. <laughs> Does he play the yellow M&M? Either the red or yellow M&M. I always forget which. He's always had such background roles in movies. I mean, he's one of those actors that I've recognized from so many roles in movies and TV shows, whatever. But it's pretty great that he got this leading role and just won an Academy Award. His role in this movie is probably more brutal than what he played in Oz. And I've only, I haven't seen a lot of Oz. I've seen a few episodes, but he's pretty intense. Well, it's uh, supposed to be a good movie. I've got it on my list. I recommend it. Good. Wow, I feel like such a dork that I didn't know this <laughs> this Oscar-nominated movie. I didn't watch the Oscars this year. It was a total weirdo movie made by this new filmmaker who's like, he was in his mid-20s. No one had ever heard of him. And it was just kind of an amazing standout and people were talking about it. But it was still very low, did not get major release as far as I know. Mm-hmm. So it was kind of like a floating around in the ether and a lot of people are yammering about it, but in very specific circles. That was the impression I got. Mm. Yeah, I don't know it. I'll have to look for it. So we've got uh, some interesting headlines in the news this week. I guess we've selected the new Google Headquarters project by Big and Heatherwick to talk about this week. It's been, uh, I think we're nearing 100 comments on our article on ArcNet. Yes, we are. Which we couldn't have possibly predicted. I mean, come on, like <laughs> a, a, a post about Google doing a new giant thing with Big. It's like, yeah. okay, it's kind of a draw. Who's going to pay attention to that? Seriously. <laughs> so what do you guys think? Oh, I have opinions. One of the first things I do want to point out, though, is just how Google made this announcement known to everyone. There was no formal press release or something. They just kind of published it on YouTube. This a video, about an eight minute video of Heatherwick and a representative from Google and Bjarka talking about the project in an extremely cinematic, like they're going to endorse the next genetically modified corn product or something at the end of it. And it just went on live on, on YouTube with very little fanfare. And of course, these things and all of the other like Google subsidiaries that exist, just kind of hosting it in whichever way that they can. And I just thought this was a really fascinating way to make such an announcement, especially given what we were talking about earlier with the um, social media agenda of the I Look Up campaign and AIA's approach to how they were trying to get their word out. Obviously, no one has the same heft or media coverage as Google, but I just thought it was a very sly move and really made it a very interesting response. I actually wasn't even aware of the video when I saw the press release. So they probably distributed the information through a variety of channels, the video being the most accessible 
to the widest audience. Mm. But they did release a press release as well to the news resource. Yeah, I think just like the majority of people that might have seen this might have just been on YouTube, like start their days and go on YouTube or whatever and just find this project landed there. I just thought it was very fascinating. I'm correct that when you guys interviewed Bjarki a couple of weeks ago for the podcast, you asked him if you're doing anything on the West Coast. And he said, uh, yeah, but not something I can talk about yet. Didn't that happen? That was after the recording. I think you heard the original cut. Okay. That was in our conversation after we finished the the podcast episode. But that was actually in reference to a, a project in a different location in, in California. So I don't think it's the same project that he was referring to. But I know that when we were in D.C., I was talking with a lot of bigsters, as they're uh, referred to. And there was a lot of buzz of a very exciting big project that was going to be announced soon. And it was made clear that it was not in LA, that one. So it must have been this, this yeah. project. So today, because I had a little time this morning here in DC, I went and saw the hot to cold exhibit in the National Building Museum. And it was fantastic. And I highly recommend everyone go. And it just reminded me again, how interesting and how there really is a lot of thought given to so many of these projects, but they are presented so slickly that I think people tend to not believe they're really very good, or it's very easy to criticize that, that they're just flashy. When in fact, I think there's a whole lot of thought in them. So I am being fairly um, optimistic and excited about this Google proposal. People who don't know much about Heatherwick, go look them up. He does lots of funky, movable things that also, you know, that are architectural, but also very movable. They're very, what's the word for them? Someone help me out here. They're like uh, uh, gadgets. There's sort of a gadgetry aspect to them. So the fact that there are these movable pieces under the big overarching ceiling structure, I think Heatherick's contribution to that might be really, really interesting. Yeah, I'm actually kind of excited about it. But then I have some other uh, concerns as well. So we can get more into it as we discuss. Well, I think that in some ways the project looks far less big than exactly what you described and the other projects that you can see on display at the National Building Museum, which kind of catalog Big's work. This has less of a like immediate iconography to it that pretty much every other of Big's projects have this stamped cartoon image that corresponds to like their idea behind them or their actual image, the actual sign of the building. This is far more almost performative. And it even reminded me of the piece that Nicholas wrote a while back about the white tent of the art fair, that it's this typology that is just like trying to be as in some ways accommodating as possible, but also as neutral as possible and as movable as possible. So it's like, we don't have to commit to anything right now. We can just have this kind of bland setup. And then through an incredible number of complications and things we actually can't really explain or even know will work at this time, we'll make it infinitely retransformable to suit whatever needs we can't possibly think of right now, but we know we will need to have it be movable. It's a really interesting typology for a structure of such status for some company that does so much. I was reading a piece by Will Ramos, the um, senior tech writer at Slate, who wrote a piece about this. And, you know, he's writing for Slate as a tech writer. He's not writing about it as a piece of architecture and design news necessarily, but he made the very clear point that others in the forum have made or in the comments discussing the article have made that this is like the opposite impression of the Apple spaceship. It gives a very different idea of what the whole corporate personality is like. Well, I mean, I was thinking about that as well, not about that article because I haven't read it, but I think that Google's selection with Big, not so much with Thomas Heatherwick in regards to what I'm talking about right now, but their selection with Big and Apple's selection with Foster, Facebook's selection of Gary, 
I think they're all just so perfectly aligned with each company's brands and, and their approach in general to the way that they work as, as businesses. I mean, Apple is very, very thoughtful and considerate and careful in what they do. Google is kind of just like throws things on the wall and tries to, you know, see what sticks. And they're all over the place. That said, I mean, I actually love this project. I think it's super exciting. But I think Google's choice in, with Big does represent their business strategy accurately. Absolutely. And I think that what still remains to be seen so much is not just the feasibility of the design, but so many people have pointed this out that as much as Mountain View is effectively a Google company town, it is not, in fact, ruled by Google, at least not yet. And so the idea that that this proposal will actually get built as is, it is nearly impossible. That's just not going to happen. So the area that Google is hoping to expand the Googleplex into, the North Bayshore area, is under consideration for a bunch of different development proposals by Mountain View. So it's not as if Google doesn't have any people vying for similar sites or with different varying proposals that may contradict or not, not make it possible for both to coexist. So that's not as if like this is just Google announcing its foregone conclusion, but in fact, like a lot of this remains to be simply seen and, and managed within the city infrastructure. They have to decide how the transit will hook up, how whether they can accommodate the housing adjustment that might be necessary. There's just a lot of other factors just for the town. But that's also what makes this project so interesting is it's like people already think of Mountain View as a company town, more or less. So how this will continue changing the whole identity of the city in regards to its largest moneymaker, Google. Well, just it'll be really interesting to see how the actual architecture influences that. I want to jump in there. My comment was completely related to this, what Amelia just said. I found this article that I enjoyed called Welcome to Google Town, and it was on The Verge. It was written by Sean Hollister. And that article talks really about the forces within the city and what's going on with the city as it relates to Google in particular. And the city of Mountain View has a city council that is basically interested in the city as a city, as a community. And one of the comments they made was that apparently a lot of Google's employees are only there for a year or so, or they're very, very, very briefly. And so the notion that everyone could live close to Google and, you know, walk to work. It's a lovely idea. But the one city council member's name was Jack Siegel said, you know, that doesn't make a community when you have this enormous transient population. And he says, you don't build a city for the current trends. You build it for the long term. I don't want to build a city where the current residents don't want to live anymore in the future. So, I, I mean, I think that there's this great excitement about the notion of a Google town, you know, that Google could have all these people. But then he also says the same city council person says, you know, Google is a perfect example of how technologies can change very quickly. And Google's on top right now, but there's no way of saying that 10 years from now, it might not be Pakistan or somewhere, you know, somewhere completely different. And then what do you have? You have an empty shell of a city. So it's a really interesting urban planning exercise as well. Just, you know, even totally around the whole notion of this cool, funky building with a glass top and movable parts. Well, they did make a point of acknowledging that the program is extremely flexible. You know, so I think that the project could feasibly be reused. Maybe it'd be difficult at that scale, but it could be used for a variety of purposes. You know, if Google does go upside down, which I really doubt it will within our lifetime. <laughs> I mean, Google's got a lot of things going on. I could imagine Facebook, you know, having troubles, mm. but Google's just got too many things in the works. It would just become a Google museum where it yeah. to fail. It would just be like put in formaldehyde and like kept exactly as it is. Or Sergey Brin's house. He could <laughs> just move in, call it quits. Ken, what did you think? You know, everything that all three of you just said that I'm always fascinated by these images because people put so much emphasis on what they're seeing on these screens and thinking that's the reality that's, that's constructed 
method. And I'm always suspicious whenever I see these fantastic renderings. That's not really what's going to happen. But at the same time, I'm kind of wondering, what do some of these people expect who are commenting on this post? I mean, we have one of the largest companies in the country dedicating itself to kind of lessening its footprint in the world and trying to mitigate some of the damage that their carbon footprint takes up and trying to look forward. And they're standing on, you know, on the other side, throwing rocks through these windows and trying to crush the project. And there's been the comment about, you know, these large corporations can't really affect sustainability. Well, that may be true, but should we not ask them to try? I mean, we're not even asking them to try. We're not even, we can't even get together and craft a code that requires companies to do this. Here's a company that's doing it on its own, regardless of any, I mean, there's no code in place requiring them to do this, but here they are, they're trying. And even if it doesn't work, I mean, it's raising awareness of how architecture and urban planning can positively affect the environment. I mean, not to mention, you know, of the three major companies that are doing work in that area, this is the only company that's actually using architects who are actually younger than me. I mean, the other two are using, you know, Foster Mm -hmm. and uh, Gary. I mean, so who's really forward thinking here? The other two who are kind of on the ends of their career and they're going to create things that look great? Or are we going to get someone who's actually going to try to create something that does push the discussion forward and ask more of, of the companies in our country about whether or not What if it succeeds? Let's look at that way. Yeah, exactly. If it succeeds, then it exponentially puts the pressure across the board saying, hey, wait a second, this is working. They're not contributing to the environmental devastation at all these other companies. So maybe we should start looking at how we do those things. I mean, I'm I'm excited by this project. I don't get caught up in the graphics. I think that they're very interesting. You know, there's a lot of talk about, well, this is, you know, they don't get rain, but maybe three times a year. And I've looked at the climate charts and they get enough rain. But even to that point, if we accept global climate change is an inevitability and that the climate will change, then we can't expect that the climate here is going to stay static and not change as well. So there's got to be something here that at least says we're taking a look at what the reality is going to look like, given the fact that no one in this country has the will or the backbone to craft laws to try to stem the tide around that issue. So I'm all for it. I'm happy they're doing it. I'm excited by the graphics. They should get rid of the pigeons in the rendering. (laughs) Maybe less pigeons, more pigeon poop. I can't help, I mean, as much as as, as excited as I am about the project and imagining, you know, being in that space, which I think could be amazing. I can't help visualizing these like kind of dirty glass windows, you know, canopy with, you know, bird shit all over it. I, I don't know how they're going to get around, you know, keeping that clean. And, and, and I'm, I'm also really curious about how that's going to function as a structure. Well, didn't Foster do something, not to this level, but I think he used a Teflon coating. So, and that was, I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, he used, um, it might not be Foster, it might be someone else, but I remember um, a kind of bubble structure that used a, a Teflon coating so that if there was, you know, bird shit on there or that the rain would just kind of wash it off because it really wouldn't adhere to the surface. So I think they're putting this image out there and saying, this isn't going to happen tomorrow, but maybe the technology will be there. And, you know, Gary pushed technology. A lot of these other designers push technology and move construction technologies further along and material technologies further along that I think these guys will do the same. Well, and also this is Google that has, you know, a limitless supply of money. Exactly. And they're treating their architecture. I mean, they're celebrating the architecture as, you know, an integral part of their business. So I think that they're going to do everything they can to make this a success, you know, I mean, as opposed to 
some other company that may just say, okay, here's our budget for the project that goes over budget, whatever, we'll cut back, you know. I mean, they're going to be invested in in making this work. Sounds familiar. <laughs> There's also, I think, a lot to be said about how much investment Google is at least paying lip service to the whole urban faction of this, of trying to model it off of this somehow like bustling city image that I will say there was this great piece by John King in San Francisco Chronicle about how he is just ranting about how every every single major firm's rendering seems to look like it's entirely populated by people who work at Google. He wasn't even referring to the Google's rendering. He was just saying like how all these images look like they were pulled from the Vogue photo shoot equivalent, but instead with Google employees. Nice. That the <laughs> the constituents are like these young herb- urbanites with uh, latest generation models of whatever, plus, you know, various hipster strollers or whatever. But that the focus on the urban factor is interesting given what we see from other major tech companies like Twitter moving specifically into downtown San Francisco to make a kind of point about their urban focus or places like Facebook campus having supposed amenities to model that and how people will also use it as a point of criticism to say like, you can't, or you maybe we shouldn't invest an entire urban health around the welfare of a single organization. I think that was just how they're trying to both embrace that and also kind of struggle with a little bit. It's very interesting to see whether they can make a functioning Google city, I guess. That's more or less what this comes off to me as. Just one last point real quick. That's a good point because what the images suggest to me is that this is a community. But is Google going to say, well, this is a community for us. It's not a community for the community that we're in. And we're just going to put a big fence around the perimeter of this thing and then we'll just kind of enclose it and just kind of make it feel like an amusement park. I would be very surprised if they let anybody outside of the Google community in. I mean, I know that Facebook doesn't let anybody in unless they're, you know, a Facebook employee. Well, but the images shown so far show that it's several sites. It's not just one building, right? Mm -hmm. It's these tent structures on several sites sort of scattered around the city. So I would think some of it would be open, at least, because they're also talking about doing a lot of environmental mitigation and, um, you know, keeping the the marshlands or wetlands Mm -hmm. accessible. So I would think you could skateboard past the Google building, at least, if not. I think that's actually the main way it would ever be experienced, because North Bay Shore is not downtown Mountain View. It's kind of on the periphery. And yes, you would take the freeway to get there, but otherwise there's no way that it's not like on the way through the middle of the city. So I think that the idea of, oh, they'll, if people are like taking a little detour, they can kind of skim the surface. They'll see the Google, right. the shimmering Google shell on the horizon and they'll enjoy the wetlands or whatever, but they're not going to, you know, try to use the bathrooms <laughs> in the uh, marketing department or something like that. Amelia, you have such a good understanding of how the city works and how people use it. <laughs> I have tried to use bathrooms in a lot of major corporate offices and sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't. So... Thank you, Donna. (laughs) Very funny. Shall we move on to the completely unrelated other major topic that we've chosen to discuss today? Yeah. How do you segue from sustainable hedonism to slavery? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That's a rough Uh, one. Yeah. I don't know if we'll have a question or we'll be able to answer that. But um, our next uh, topic of discussion is going to center around the Whitney Plantation Museum um, recently opened outside of New Orleans. This is a fascinating project that I only recently became aware of where a a rich white Southerner, let's call him, <laughs> by the name of John Cummings, who made a lot of money as a lawyer and also as a real estate investor, purchased many years ago this old plantation home with still intact slavery quarters and on a giant piece of land in, outside of New Orleans and has just recently succeeded in opening it up as the what is strangely true to be the first American slavery museum. So it's both a historical relic. It's an actual piece of the history of slavery in in New Orleans. 
and that the buildings are, and the structures are original. However, there are some renovated or like rebuilt fac- areas of it. But uh, under the guidance of Cummings and a bunch of other um, involved academics, he's kind of outfitted the place with performance pieces, art pieces, memorials to things that are both also interpreted as the prior two things. And he holds tours. And it's just a fascinating piece. And so I was hoping we could kind of try to talk about it as a piece of preservationist architecture, as a as a museum. It just encapsulates so many interesting concepts. It is a fascinating place. And if you read the New York Times article, it's a fairly long read. It's really good. Yeah, it's a great article. It really digs into some some really difficult questions about this. And what was fascinating to me was that John Cummings is sort of, he's doing this on his own. And he started out being actually very straightforward about the fact that it was an emotional story that needs to be told, that we as a country need to learn to deal with the fact that slavery is a huge part of our past and that this story is a compelling and very emotional and very personal narrative. But now the museum's been open for a few weeks. He's also now looking to get together a board for the museum that will be more of an academic focus and we'll bring maybe more of a public education aspect to the museum. But the New York Times article asked very clearly, you know, is this a museum or is this an art piece in itself that sort of is using a narrative approach to talk about slavery? <sighs> this, <laughs> it's hard, isn't it? It's a hard one. No, I think it's um, part of my problem with it. And this is a part one of the, I think, uh, uh, part one piece. I think there's more to this. I think it's going to be even longer uh, in the New York Times piece. This is not a private experience. And I, I appreciate this gentleman putting the money out there to craft something that shamefully our country hasn't gotten around to recognizing, but it is not his story to tell. Fortunately and unfortunately, it's not his story to tell. It's our country's story to tell. And we have a responsibility to tell that story. Despite whatever climate socially or culturally exists today, it's a shameful reminder. And again, this is a tough one to say because because we have a past that we all own, with the exception of Paul, uh, being a Canadian. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we took but, them in. I know, I know. Yeah, because Canada rocks. <laughs> but we we had a Holocaust museum in the United States before we had a museum dedicated to Native peoples. We have a Holocaust museum in this country before we have a museum dedicated to the history of slavery in this country. And the Holocaust didn't happen here. Now, I have always been interested in, in the idea that the Holocaust Museum does exist in the States. And I remind myself that even before World War II, that Jews in this country, there was a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism. So it kind of it made sense to me that a lot of aging survivors that live here in the States would not be able to get back there. And there needs to be something here to remind people of the horrors that existed. And I, what I find deeply disturbing, I guess, about the idea that there's a question as to whether or not this is an art piece is that we talked about the Holocaust Museum over the Birkenau. I forget which mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. place we yeah. talked about. Yeah. I mean... You know, there's a correlation here between those two. And I don't know, is there a gift shop at Birkenau? I mean, is there a gift shop here? (laughs) Are there German Jews dressed up as Holocaust survivors there? I mean, what is the point? I mean, it's not a museum to me. It seems more of a... Um, what would you call it? Like a, a, a not a sideshow, but almost it just maybe it is an art piece, but in a weird way. I just find it disturbing. Can I, I think I, I'm also interested in something you're bringing up about this distinction between is it a museum historical retelling or is it a artistic preservation narrative thing? 
And I think that because of the nature of slavery also involving a completely destroyed history of the people, like purposely destroyed history of the Mm -hmm. lives of so many people that were part of this, that it makes it extremely difficult to have, say, known authors whose writings we can attribute to or like primary or to attain authorship of or to know authorship of primary source documents related to actual slaves and all these things where, so for example, in the museum, there's this one scenario where Cummings was able to find recordings from, I believe, the 30s of former slaves or or children of former slaves who were giving testimony for some writer's project. And so these recordings that he purchased didn't have anything necessarily to do with the actual plantation. They might not have been indeed from slaves who even, or even from actual slaves. There was a variety of recordings in, in which some of them were from actual slaves. And when he took these recordings, he put them in the slave quarters. He set up a speaker system so that they could run the recording of the slaves talking and telling their stories out of the slave quarters on the plantation property. So that when you tour the place, you go to those this to the slave quarters, you can hear the sounds of, the, of people who would have lived in similar type scenarios. That is obviously not a factual uh, reconstruction of exactly what happened at that area. So it's hard to call it that is a historical recreation. But it's a piece of very affecting, very moving, very true to the scenario creation. And it's whether or not you interpret it as art, it seems to not really matter at this point because you can, regardless of whether you could debate the details of each individual scenario, you know that this history is, d- did happen. And I think that that's kind of the point of Cummings is he's very, in the in the piece, he comes off as really like purposely wanting to put people in a somewhat manipulated scenario where they feel really manipulated by what's going on, but because it really needs to be affecting in that way. It needs to provoke people, which no one really is easy to, it's not easy to say that you want that out of a museum. The thing with this museum is that it's very common for there to be plantation museums that people go to and it's all about mint juleps and hoop skirts, right? It's all about this, this you know, the lovely Southern genteel era. And the fact that there has not until now been a museum that shows that the, that lifestyle was only available because of slavery, that's just shocking to me that in this country, in this time, it's been 150 years, we still don't have that. I wanted to point out there's a very funny YouTube woman, a woman named Azee Mira Dungy. I have no idea if I'm pronouncing that properly. She did these YouTube videos called Ask a Slave. And she's someone who worked as a slave reenactor in a, I think, on Mount Vernon. And, you know, she gets these questions that are just stupid. They're just, they're terrible. And it really shows that we as a country, we have no idea how to deal with the fact that we own slaves, that even George Washington owned slaves. And so I think this, however this museum pans out, if it becomes something, even though it is very emotional, I think with the 9-11 museum just open and it says that it is very emotional, the Holocaust Museum in Germany, the Liebskin Museum, very emotional, I think. If that's part of how we are able to come to terms with these parts of our history, then that's, I think that's fine. It doesn't have to be dry history. I agree with you. I think um, what's frustrating, you know, and you were talking about the hoop skirts, and I I was reflecting on um, about a year ago, um, Andy DeFranco went through a whole uh, lot of hell when she decided she was going to have a, um, like a songwriter session at one of these plantations. And it just blew her mind that she had no idea that she thought this was going to be a good thing. And (laughs) her privilege again, I think privilege got in the way. And, um, but I think this kind of museum makes sense for its its specificity where it's located and its contextual nature. But I think 
these kinds of big things need to be in Washington, D.C. I mean, this is where the policies and the, and the whole, mm. everything mm-hmm. was structured. This needs to be a constant reminder to that this is not just a joyride. You're not going to, you know, any of the colonial estates to kind of, you know, have a family-friendly picnic. This is a constant reminder of our collective shame. And as, as laudable as it is, for this gentleman to be doing that and preserving some of the history, I just think that a museum of this nature needs to be situated in our nation's capital. And it's just, it's difficult by me to kind of think about this in any other way than just, because I'm trying to figure out how do you get people who need to see this and experience it to see it Mm -hmm. and experience it? You know, I think it's fine if Black Americans go, obviously that makes sense. I mean, they want to connect with their own uh, sense of their own history. But what about our own sense of our own history? Um, I, I find it deeply frustrating that, um, you know, a lot of people probably won't go there because they'll feel it's like it's not for them and it's essentially for them. Well, maybe this museum is what the country needs to get an official slavery museum established. It might be. I mean, we finally, how how long ago did Douglas Cardinal's museum here for the Native American open here in D.C.? It was only a few years ago, right? So, you know, we stomp on the Native Americans for 200 and some years, and now they finally get a museum. I think, oh, I knew I would find it somewhere. It says there's a small portion of the Smithsonian is supposed to be dedicated to a National Museum of African American History and Culture. Not the same thing as a Museum of Slavery. And, you know, I know from Cincinnati, the um, Underground Railroad Museum is a really affecting place to go to, great building. But yeah, I think you're right, Paul, that this little Whitney sort of private museum may start to drum up the conversation on a national level. We can hope. Definitely. Yeah, that's a tough one. And, you know, I just kept all through the article, kept thinking, it's always rich people who just get to do the things they want to do. You know, it's always the rich people that say, I'm going to do this weird thing because no one else is doing it. And sometimes that's great. And sometimes it's not. Well, one last fascinating fact that went into the fascinating fact that went into the article (laughs) was how the property was originally going to become a Formosa like fabrics, mm-hmm. fabrication, or like a new plantation, basically, by the Formosa Company to craft things like rayon fabrics and such. Right. And that they were going to take the whole property and, you know, keep some token areas as they were to, you know, create a Creole museum or something and just kind of like pay lip service to the area and to the historical status of the scenario. But then also most of it would be just like a factory. And yeah. so that was the alternative um, that was immediately preceded John Cummings from owning the property. So it's, you know, it, it, it's a really valuable opportunity that he took advantage of. I, I'll go back and beat my chest again about this. I mean, the, all these plantations should be on a national, they should be national parks. They should not mm-hmm. be anything. They should not be privatized. They should not be for uh, singers to go have, you know, songwriting sessions. These should be National Historic Registry and public parks. I mean, that's what these are for. It shouldn't be for anything for any kind of private use. Well, you know, when you're in D.C. as I am and the museums are all free, it's just a reminder of how important it is that, as my friend Sean Starowitz said, and I've probably said it on the podcast and I will say it again, culture is a protein, not a dessert. We need this culture. We need to have these national conversations and not make them be about someone making a profit, like you said, not a private space where you go and pay and get on a roller coaster. And tell your your version of the history. I mean, that's part of what I was getting at is that I'm sure he's doing right by history, but it's still his vision of history. And it's to, you know, to use a phrase, it's a, a little bit of a whitewashing. 
You know, I mean, yep. it, it could be seen that way. Well, it might be. It might be. Right. Because I think many black Americans would say, you know, wait a second, who is this guy to tell our history? There's certainly, you know, there's certainly better people out there. And I'm, you know, I hope, I hope he's done all the right things and engaged the right people to tell that. And I think he has. I think there's a lot of interesting relationships that are outlined in the article that he's developed with various, both academics and other representatives throughout, like other authorities that might help him create a not only historically accurate, but sensitive and appropriately emotionally sensitive scenario, including someone, I believe Senegalese or Senegalese, excuse me, academic in particular, whose name I'm not remembering right now. But I mean, I know that having been in New Orleans, the next time I'm there, I'm definitely going over there for yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, that was our first episode without a guest. <laughs> so I oh think we're going to manage to keep it under an hour. Way to go us. That's an accomplishment. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Patting myself on the back. <laughs> but we definitely will be uh, having a guest with us next week. Amelia, you're off to New York tomorrow, right? For the Yes, I am both terrified and excited. Terrified because there's supposed to be a storm and I'm a Californian, so we'll see what the weather is like. But <laughs> this Thursday, I will head to New York City to attend a conference at Pratt. They are hosting this conference called Sculpting the Architectural Mind, Neuroscience, and the Education of the Architect, which I'm very excited to attend. A two-day conference, Friday and Saturday. It's open to the public and free. So if you're in New York, highly recommend checking it out, dropping in and out. There's a lot of really interesting speakers coming and should be really interesting and not too shabby that I'll have some time in New York City. Excellent. It sounds like a really great conference that you're going to. And the whole neuroscience thing is really picking up. I, I just yeah. am saying it ev everywhere. Neuroscience, how architects approach neuroscience. It's really, yeah, it's it's really becoming a hot topic. So, Well, Amelia has been doing a great job covering the topic quite a bit on Archonnect. And there's going to be a little piece coming up shortly before you leave, right? Uh, just introducing mm -hmm. this this conference. Probably when I am in the air and before this podcast airs, it will be uh, on the site. Great. So I wanted to just mention two things quickly. The first one is, is um, very open-ended and that is the, there's a thread on Archonnect right now called AIA Branding Improvement. And it was started by Spatial Sojourner, who's basically asking why is the AIA not so good in their technological, um, you know, in the, their websites. And, and I think we talked about that a little bit with uh, Robert Ivey after Robert Ivey a couple weeks ago. And all I can say there, and I will say it again, I'm here at the AIA. I feel like the AIA is really aware, self-aware right now as an organization that we are not as effective as we could be and that we're not taking advantage of the kinds of technologies and medias that we could be. And like I said, I'm going to be in a little focus group tomorrow morning about exactly that topic. So I will hopefully have more to report on that after tomorrow morning. The other thing I just wanted to mention, there was a little article and it has not gotten much play. It's in the news. It's called A Look at Africa's Modernist Architecture. Nicholas Cody put up a, a little link to a story at The Guardian about modern, capital M, modern 1960s, 70s architecture in Africa. And these buildings are just intensely crazy and wonderful. They're definitely the product of no fear of experimentation, right? So I was at the big, the National Building Museum today looking at the at Big's work in the hot and cold exhibit. And, you know, I think that there's all this, you know, fear and hand-wringing about the the architects and these big monuments that are taking over our world as if they really are. You know, it can't hurt to have some really eccentric, crazy pieces of architecture in the world. Because when you look at the vast majority of the landscape, it's just not that inspiring. So I'm looking at these 
African, these buildings in Africa from the 1960s. And they are intensely awesome and speak to a part of, yeah, speak to, to, a, to a spirit of, of optimism about the world. So when I look at Bjarke Ingels' work and including this, this Google, this new Google thing, I feel optimistic. I don't think the whole world is going to look like that and it shouldn't. But I think that we can have room in our built environment for these completely off the wall wonderful experimental forms and uh, and we should embrace them as well as we embrace the little quiet lovely you know libraries and restaurants and little things that make up our daily lives so absolutely nicely said yeah very nicely said donna good well i, I encourage people to go look at this a look at africa's modernist architecture because alexander also put up a link to um, some photographs by iwan bon of the work and um He's now our architectural photographer of the moment, right? So um, they're beautiful images. Absolutely beautiful. I believe Ewan's in Africa right now, actually. Uh, Is he? Working on something related to that exhibition. Yeah, great. So that's it. I, I have um, an open house at the AIA to get to. <laughs> Cocktails to drink. Cocktails to drink <laughs> if they're still there. And um, they have a little building right outside the main AIA headquarters called the Octagon, where they always put the desserts. So I have to get down there and get some cupcakes. <laughs> oh, before so, they're all gone. Before they're all gone. Well, yep. thanks for taking time out of your schedule in D.C. and uh, braving the hotel Wi-Fi to join us this week. <laughs> always uh, good to talk to you guys. Yeah, it was great talking with everyone. As always, we love feedback. We love comments, questions, anything you've got. We love hearing that you listen to the to the podcast. We're getting more and more great feedback from people about the podcast. People are starting to, to really uh, get hooked. And uh, we'd love to see more more comments and feedback on iTunes. And uh, we've got uh, a call-in number, 213-784-7421, if you feel like saying anything that we could potentially use on the air. Uh, you can send us an email, connect at rconnect.com. If you have legal questions, let us know. Be specific. And our legal correspondent, Brian, might just answer that for you. And you can also reach us on Twitter, it's a great way to communicate with with all of us because we're all on Twitter as opposed to email, which ends up going to one person. If you're on Twitter, use hashtag Sessions, and we will definitely pay attention. Thanks for joining us again. Good to talk to you guys. Great to talk to you. And uh, I look yep. forward to next week. Yep, me too. Likewise. Have a good week. Bye, Bye. guys. Bye. Bye.